Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're coming to the energy transition from a real estate lens. Retooling power grids, connecting offshore wind, connecting solar farms, all requires real estate. And that brings not only costs, but a lot of complexity, particularly around planning and permitting. As billions of dollars pours into renewables, how should companies tackle and think about the complexity and challenges that lie within commercial real estate? Our guest is Eugene McGran. Eugene is a commercial real estate executive with over 20 years experience and currently leads Cushman and Wakefield's brokerage efforts around renewables and has deep insight into this topic, a topic that can often be overlooked and have significant impacts on the timing and costs of delivering these projects. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really does support the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Eugene, welcome to the show. Paul, thanks for having me. I've been very impressed with your guests and very interested in the show, and, and thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. So we are essentially, we're talking commercial real estate and weaving that through the renewables, the energy transition, what it, what it means from a land consumption, from a planning, and some of those considerations that can often get lost. But it, it'd be rude to have you on and not start off with kind of the somewhat the elephant in the room, given we've had you know, Edward Chancellor on a lot talking about rising interest rates. That's kind of been a big theme of, of the shows this year. And that has a big commercial real estate story. Can you just, I'd love to get your take on kind of the, the state of office space. Yeah, sure. I like Edward Chancellor's um, interview very much. And I thought he had some great points about the rising costs driven by interest rates. You know, it's it's fascinating because we've been in such a low interest rate environment for so long, and it's driven a lot of investment decisions. So it's important for your listeners who are much more informed about the commodity sector than, than I am to, to have a little bit of a basis and understanding of, of the real estate sector. So when we look at commercial real estate, we're, we're really talking about a couple of different buckets. Everybody thinks of the the high rises and the class A office buildings. And that's only a small portion of what we look at as commercial real estate. There's office, industrial warehouse, which has become a huge sector with really the rise of Amazon and online shopping. And um, as distribution networks have become much more mature. And that's been a major driver, especially through the pandemic of commercial real estate and is it's what's driving the earnings for the large brokerage companies of which Cushman Wakefield's one of the three largest. And then there's there's apartments. And so we consider those kind of the three major sectors. But within office space, uh, there's a few different pieces. And as we see this, you know, year four of, of post-pandemic remote work mature, and as we see the challenges with a rising interest rate environment coupled with low entry cap rates um, and you're starting to see defaults within that market you know there are some some subsectors that have been incredibly healthy so let me just kind of take office as a, as a as an initial spot within the office sector we, we we see functional obsolescence as a as a major risk and as a reality but 
what we have seen is there are some industries that are resilient to work from home. We've seen the tech sector to be very much a a reality where you where work from home is affecting occupancy levels, and those occupancy levels are going to be a lot lower than they historically were. And so those those buildings are most at risk for interest rate defaults. And when I say interest rate defaults, here's how it works: is the buildings are purchased based on a cap rate return. They're financed typically over five to ten years. Those loans are now coming due. They were bought in core plus markets at three or four percent returns with the expectation that rent growth would get them to seven to 11 percent internal rates of return. return. As interest rates have risen and occupancy has gone flat or down, those buildings are now upside down. And so what you're going to see is some defaults in core markets that you would not see unless we were in a major recession. Those defaults are not actually being driven by employment numbers, which is the typical way that we've seen those defaults driven in the past. So the office sector is actually, you know, in in kind of a lot of trouble, but not quite because the lenders are much more well capitalized than they were in the past, despite what we're seeing with Silicon Valley Bank and the other you know, community banks and smaller regional banks. And as we see that work itself through, I think it'll actually drive a lot of modernization in the office sector. So that's the office sector. I don't know how clear that was, but that's that's yeah. that's an answer on that. I think for our listeners and for me, you know, there's a couple of interesting comments there. One is particularly, can you give us some sense on whether we're seeing a return to the work or whether we're seeing sort of sustained hybrid setups, remote setups that you think overall going to just lower square footage demand? I mean, give us that sense there. Yes and no. Okay, so in in the largest growth sector in the place that so Blackstone just raised thirty billion dollars for their for their latest real estate fund. So there's no lack of demand for capital and institutional investment belief in office long term. There is there is a lot of hesitancy in investing in core plus markets that were traditionally very heavy users of five day a week office space. You know, you sit in Houston, you guys have been through more booms and busts than most as the energy sector kind of goes up and down and you see you see firms staff up and, and go down around that. What we're seeing is that some industries, engineering, almost anything to do with tech, do not have the same five-day-a-week needs as they used to. Now, there's a, there's a flip side to that, which is in the last 20 years, or 30 almost, we've gone from a per-square-foot-per-person usage rate of a law firm used to take 400 square feet per person, and that included your admin and, and your secretarial pool and everything else. Well, we, we had had that down pre-pandemic to 175 feet per person. So what we had done is densify the space tremendously in order to cut costs based on, you know, an ability to utilize the space better. Well, we're not going to put that many people in that close to the quarters anymore. So some of the demand for space is actually going to be offset by increasing square feet per person. So it's going to be quite, it's going to be a bit of a balancing act uh, in the short term. It's had a real effect and it will continue to have a real effect. I work from home as a reality. 
And it's got a lot to do with our built environment. Our built environment requires people to commute and people don't want to commute. So if you can yeah. avoid going into the office three days a week and, and facing an hour or an hour and a half commute each way, you will, especially if it doesn't have any any effect on your on your work productivity. If you, and if you can still log into chat GPT, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Where are we at in, I guess, the industrials and data centers as well? Because that is also relevant to this community. Yeah, and actually, this is this is where I think there's a transition to really understand what the, the the role of commercial real estate can have in renewables. I think it's really important to understand that data center usage is a specialty line that uh, exists in commercial real estate, where we have been finding and, and operating these data centers for large organizations and REITs for the last 20 or 30 years. And those were decisions that were based solely on cost of power because it's not a labor issue. You know, you don't staff a data center. Um, and so a lot of those have been located near hydropower because it was cheap and it was reliable and um, it was very predictable for cost. But as we see computing changes, which one of your guests talked about, when we talk about chat GPT, you know, the data center buildup, uh, the last one we had what was, for this kind of growth in cloud computing. And some of it was based on this kind of craze for Bitcoin and, and the computing power that took. That's gone and, and really isn't going to be there. But the data center usage is just going to continue to grow. And that's one of the healthiest sectors within the commercial real estate sector. And one of the ones that's going to have to drive a transition to some sort of really dependable renewable. So if you just noticed there was a headline, the Foxconn deal in Wisconsin that never really happened. Microsoft just bought that campus for $50 million and it's going to build a massive data center there. And again, Microsoft is doing that as a plan for what's going to continue to be growth in, in ChatGPT and and the, the continuous demand for more computing power as we get through it. And, and and just on that, there, there's obviously absolute pressure or at least, you know, company led goals around lower carbon, lower carbon net zero. You know, mm -hmm. presumably these data centers, that data center in particular, they're, they're going to look for renewable solutions to provide an enormous amount of power, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And we're seeing that um, in a lot of these announcements. And that's where there's a bit of a cross here. We're seeing that Orsted continues to announce that they bought one of the larger onshore wind producers when they came to, to the United States. And um, they just announced a deal with Google to provide a, a large amount of power via renewables. And so I, I would expect that Microsoft, I know they have a similar program and did sign a deal last year, but I don't know. And, and so I, I think those specific high power usage commercial real estate assets kind of illustrate where we're going with planned usage of renewables. Great. That makes sense. Um, and then that, the, that the industrials? Industrial, industrial sector? Industrials are really interesting because industrials, we've seen a massive growth in warehousing capabilities in the United States in the last decade. As we've seen retail basically become a, a conduit for consumerism um, as opposed to the real home of it. 
Amazon has driven a, an absolute growth across the board. There's there's a 3% vacancy for warehouse space across the country. And we, we're building nothing but million square foot brand new warehouses now. And those those large portfolios of assets, the, those are what give our, our industry an ability to adopt at scale both energy efficiencies and um, look towards renewables as a way to one control costs going forward because you know we've all seen within these markets power increases and there's only so much you can do to provide affordability for your tenants if power costs just keep going up and so we look at renewables as a as a kind of affordability hedge against volatility within the within the power markets so when you look at the large warehousing companies prologis is is obviously one one of their chief hires was a, a guy from BlackRock who ran their renewable division. So, you know, this is something that we're all planning on having to understand better as we go forward. And the clients are demanding it. So the tenants are demanding having a better renewable footprint. And from a landlord's perspective, we look at it as it has to be, you know, sustainability works because efficiency works. You know, any way you can squeeze more money out of the asset by spending less money on on things like power and having more dependability going forward makes the most sense to us. Yeah. And in in the in the greatest of all segues planning is you know is where it's at and what we're going to be talking about, right? Yeah, so, perfect. You know, there's all these drivers, right? And there's, you know, there's there's cost, there's net zero goals, there's, you know, efficiency, there's controlling your own power sources. There's a lot of drivers for why you would, you know, you can take advantage of of Technologies, wind, solar, to to support these dissenters, and as we previously had John Belazer on a few a number of episodes ago, now talking about some of this computing is kind of on demand as well. So there is a bit of a tie up with intermittency. But let's because the, the the meat of this story for me and, and discussions that we've had is actually it can has been a bit of a forgotten detail. We're seeing more and more of it today in the in the US, at least in the media around planning for transmission and so on. But can you, I guess, to frame the discussion, can you can you sort of give us this? Um, you know, if you're building an offshore wind farm, can you kind of give us the the land and planning considerations? And, and it's been a bit weird talking about land when you talk about offshore, but considerations to actually get that power to market, so to speak. Can you just walk us through sort of the the physical logistics frameworks and land usage that that takes? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I mean that's. To me, that's the fundamental challenge with this 30 gigawatt goal for the for the East Coast and now 35. And and with all of these bids, you know, that have been successfully run by BOEM, the, 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 the largest challenge that the developers have had is that they are operating on a European mindset because that's where the expertise is to deliver the offshore wind piece, which is the only one of the few ways to deliver at scale power on a renewable basis on the on the on the east coast and uh kind of going forward it's easier to do kind of through the midwest because you're just doing you're kind of plugging right into the grid and there's not as much to do but when we're talking about offshore you know the grid isn't set up for this it's set up for power to be generated inland and delivered to the people that live and use it on the coast including industry and the developers almost all of them are used to a much more predictable European regulatory system for this or planning system for this. You know, the the power company or the 
the entity will come to them and say, we want you to do this. They'll say, okay, this is what, you know, I'll, I'll bid for the ocean area that I can deliver the power in. I'll build the transmission. You tell me where to land it. And that's your problem. Well, that's not how the U.S. governmental system works. And we don't have the port infrastructure to deal with it. So one of the big tie-ins here is as so much of the the U.S. real estate market has been consumed by distribution warehouse, the vacancy at the ports where you would need the kind of land to deliver the marshaling ports doesn't exist. And those are those are large 300, 400 acre ports in the U.K. and in Denmark, in you're the, talking about the, the just putting the turbine blades and you know the yeah. stuff before it gets you know constructed. The nice, the nice cells, those giant engines, the towers. They have to have no overhead because they they're so large. And every day you take them out to the to the ocean and construct them there costs you an enormous amount of money. And the more times you touch anything like this, just like any other large construction problem, the more likely you are to break it. So you really only want to touch it once. The cable, you only want to wind twice. You want to wind it onto the boat and then you want to unwind it when you when you take it out. There are tremendous logistical issues in delivering this power through this kind of new industry. But once you get past the logistical issues, there's, there's tremendous planning issues. And this has been something that the real estate industry has been dealing with for for a long, long time is the intransigence and the challenges of the local permitting processes and how those local permitting processes can keep large projects from from being done. This headline just hit yesterday. The Supreme Court in Maine just said you have to allow the the clean transmission line to run through. It's like a billion dollar project to run through Maine. And, you know, it was just a power line. The people of Maine said, we don't want it. And they're part of the Northeastern power area. And so they were able to put a whole area on hold by one small state, you know, throwing a flag and saying, we don't want this to happen. So, you know, that the planning to deliver these sorts of things is a real challenge. And, you know, I don't think the political will is there yet to deal with it. I don't know that we really have the visibility on how much it's going to be an impediment to actually delivering these projects, especially mm-hmm. as we go forward, is really being understood. You know, the transmission point, um, there was a guy from Shell, um, James Cotter, who I heard speak, and he made this fantastic point about we haven't even planned if we're going to spine the offshore wind turbines or if we're going you know, and then have multiple points of ingress into the different grids, how the different grids are going to talk to each other. There's an an enormous level of complexity and the developers are just now getting their arms around the challenges that the U.S. presents as a different kind of animal to deal with because of local, state, federal regulations and how they interact with each other. Yeah. And and just, just, you know, from a layman standpoint, right? So even sort of putting the as you said kind of the power is designed to flow from the in out and suddenly it's got to go the other way and you're suddenly trying to find substation space in highly dense high you know in long island right or brooklyn or whatever it might be right i mean the even the sort of the actual availability itself is a challenge this the space that's required for these things is a challenge in itself as well 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, New York, uh, NYSERDA is, you know, one of the most mature power markets in the country. They've got, you know, everything from the the Robert Moses Dam. Um, I mean, we almost need a Robert Moses level figure to start to deal with this stuff because it, it is an incredible challenge. You know, Manhattan and the boroughs are one of the largest uses of powers in the in the world. It's also one of the most expensive places to buy real estate in the world. And the grid is set up to feed from the other end. So what we basically have been doing over the last couple of years is looking for, you, you can flip the switch essentially. Um, and, and there's gonna be power engineers who listen to this and, and laugh at the, the terminology I use. But um, essentially, if you had a user, an industrial style user that was taking enough power in, on a coastal region or a close enough proximity, you can turn the transmitters around and take power in there and gen use that as a generation station. But those sites are hard to find. And especially as you get into places like New York, it gets more and more challenging uh, to find transmission yeah. space. And, and, and one of the challenges is the, the only way to do it cost effectively from offshore and the, the way that the transmission line should be built um, going forward is they should be HVDC lines. But in order to get the HVDC lines into the grid, you got to do take them from an HVDC down to a step down to an AC. And there are power engineers that understand that a lot better than I do. But that requires, you know, five acres of space in Brooklyn, it takes five, five acres of space in Manhattan. And that's not easy to find. No, no, unless some of these, uh, <laughs> obviously office buildings decide to get retooled, but the, the, the okay so but the, just staying on the planning piece for the minute just to help sure. us understand that and also kind of the practical advice about you know because lots of our clients are in various you know formats you know t undertaking these right whether it's the oil majors or whatever it might be what is is it is it a disconnect from the is it this classic essentially nimbyism is it, or is it disconnect at the federal level to the state level? How do, you know? How does sort of I guess the, the current political divide play into this, or is this someone everyone's behind? And then what are the practical steps or understanding that you need to gain to be able to start tackling these issues? Because as you say, many of these firms are from Europe, and this is probably not necessarily number one in their risk mitigation factors. I mean, you just you you, you hit on ninety percent of the challenges. I mean, the first thing I told one of the large producers that I met with who came from Denmark, I said, look, you should probably spend the time and sit down and read Robert Caro's The Power Broker. It's a hell of an assignment to give somebody a thousand page book, but it does explain how all of this should work. I do think that we have a challenge with the political moment we're in where the people in oil and gas have the best experience in how to execute these projects. And... I went to one of these conferences and I sat at a table with a number of the, the, the platform builders from the Gulf of Mexico. And they, they, they said, you know, we know how to build these things. And yet we feel like we shouldn't be here because of the way, you know, oil and gas is discussed. And so I, I think there needs to be a practicality to deliver this, that, you know, that there needs to be expertise from other fields. So that, that's one issue. The way that David Hardy at, at Orsted put it to me and the way that I believe it is that this is this is all about energy security. You know, I think the the net zero goals and everything that goes on with that, I think it's important and 
really vital to the future. I also think that having an ability to diversify our energy index and our production supply, it, it makes it makes just practical sense. And so, you know, one of your guests talked about, well, you know, how are we going to meet the moment? And the, the, it's just a lot. I, I've heard a, a kind of an ongoing theme on on your podcast, which is incredibly informative. But there's this, you know, how we ever get here. If you look at the math, it just doesn't work. And I can understand that. I do think that what you do talk about is a shift. And, you know, we don't know what the technological shifts are going to be that allow for these things to be developed. But we kind of all have to pull in the same direction. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. There is also, but you would think, and I guess I want to understand, all sides of the political spectrum should be able to find some angle to this that makes sense to them. You've got the IRA there, okay, that's under attack now with the debt ceiling. But I'm trying to understand, sort of, is this just the sort of labyrinthine nature of state and local government and city level stuff interacting that slows everything down? Or is it nimbyism? I mean, I'm trying to understand sort of where the brakes are outside of the fact that finding five acres in Manhattan's, you know, an expensive <laughs> and arduous task. Like when it comes to the voters of Maine and they're like, well, I don't, you know, I get it. I don't want a substation on my, my beautiful bit of coast on Highway 1 or whatever it is. I'm just trying to understand sort of is it is it sort of just the grinding of the cogs it's just a very you know you don't have much eminent domain all this kind of stuff or is it actually a political divide between sort of the the state and the city level or even just you know it it is a political issue and and I mean I'm just trying to understand that well it's so it's funny I, I actually I I think I think that's a really good question and I think the answer is it's more that it's the grind. It's more that it's just really difficult to build infrastructure projects. And part of that is the system that we've set up. And I do go back to the, the, the Robert Moses stuff all the time. You know, the response in the United States post the, post the 60s and 70s was to add incredible layers of difficulty from a permitting standpoint. And that's where the divide gets gets it's really fuzzy is one side the environmental side so, says that we can't have regulatory reform reform and the other side doesn't really look at it and say look this really isn't regulatory it should be permitting reform we shouldn't allow projects to be held up so in california we we have we have the eir and it's used by the carpenters union we had in the heart of the recession in 2008 we couldn't get anything built we had tremendous housing needs, and there was an old 1970s headquarters building that was going to get torn down. It was right next to mass transit, and they were going to put 400 apartments. And every construction guy was out of work because the housing market had collapsed. And the project was held up for three years by the Carpenters Union because they filed an environmental impact report complaint. Their, their representative literally got in the paper and said, hey, 
you know, I could make this go away. Just tell me you're going to hire more union carpenters. Well, the thing is, everybody was at wage scale. And it was literally just one group fighting everybody else. And there was no sense of shared, hey, if, you, if this project goes well, the, it'll start to help the recovery from the other projects. And so part of it is NIMBYism. Part of it is it presented as NIMBYism. Part of it is, you know, there's, I, I know, a transmission line. Weaponization that gonna... of, uh, of regulation, right? the courts are making what are essentially should be political decisions right i think that's happening more and more and it's even happening you know globally i don't think this story is necessarily unfamiliar to europe either where we're essentially you know we're using legal recourse for things that really in the end should be a policy not regulation if you'd like or, or not legal decisions yeah no and everybody you know it's the old hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. You know, he gets his, his house demolished because he didn't go down and look at the <laughs> he didn't, permit. He, he didn't. He didn't go see on Alpha Alpha Centauri or whatever it was. When the planning was, was posted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I I hope all of the the five people on the podcast that get that joke enjoy it. But <laughs> you know, attitude that holdover attitude of well, if I didn't get full input, it can't possibly be a good project is one of the biggest challenges we have in going forward and making the energy transition. Is that so you take so you've got these various goals out of Europe, various acts, obviously the the, the critical minerals act in, in in Europe in the EU is getting put together, you've got the IRA here in the US. Is all of this financial and economic support through subsidies, etc. Is that in any way then being backed up by trying to tackle the permitting, the regulation piece? Because we do need these transmission lines, right? We do need our power infrastructure, as Jim Fallon many, many episodes ago was talking about, is degrading, right? You know, and, and is not fit for the, the, the types of new sources of power and intermittency that's going to come onto it. Is there a recognition at the government level, governmental level that this is something that needs to be tackled? And the urgency of this means, sadly, that there are going to have to be some trade-offs with environment, you know, with, you know, et cetera, et cetera, when it great crested newts or whatever it might be, not to sound, God, sounding very right-wing here, but you know what I mean? Like, is, is the, in other words, my very long-winded question is, is economic, is policy also understanding the need to unwind some of this regulation to get things moving? You know, I, I think part of it is we're, we, we sit at a really interesting generational time. And so my hopeful answer is yes. And the examples I can give you come from growing up and spending all my time in California. We did PG&E's work there for a long time. And we watched, you know, and that is by no means a, a perfectly run system. We, we, we all need to kind of get away from demonizing there's some, you know, there's some person twisting their mustache somewhere. I mean, here, here was the fundamental problem. Uh, the PG&E had with their transmission system. They had a 100-year-old transmission system in a massive state, and climate change and earthquakes happen in California. We have droughts and we have earthquakes. And every year, PG&E would go to their regulatory board because they're publicly traded, publicly regulated. So they're, they're one of these kind of strange, semi-private, semi-public entities. So every time they go, they have to go to the PUC and they go, okay, look, we have $100 million worth of infrastructure projects that we need to pay for. The attitude might be, well, you know, do you really have $100 million worth of projects or you just, you know, want to increase your budget? And the PUC would say, well, our job is to protect the rate payers. And so we're not going to approve $100 million, but we'll give you, we'll give you seven. 
Well, the engineers at PG&E look at them and they go, okay, well, that just means next year I have $200 million worth of projects because I didn't get to do the projects that I was supposed to do this year. And I know that I still have to do them. And so it takes things like the California wildfires that have happened that are causing PG&E to have to underground their lines and they, they get more flexibility from the PUC. It took things like the San Bruno explosion where PG&E had to build a modern pipeline monitoring system where we leased 200,000 feet right across the street from Chevron's headquarters in San Ramon and built a really modern system. So there is hope. It has to be a conversation, and I don't hear it talked about nearly enough, which is there has to be reasonableness in applying for these permits. There has to be a timeline. There has to be certainty. Because we are seeing, and this is the important part, is we're not just seeing the, the public acts, right, that show these kind of large federal and governmental programs that are pouring money into these problems. But we're also seeing private companies really start to make the bet that this stuff has legs. And once you see private investment really, really make the bet, I mean, the amount of money that Orsted's gonna, is deploying currently, the amount of money that Eversource is, is, is deploying currently, all of these large wind scale developers are deploying, that's real money. They have to go get that money somewhere and they have to justify it to investors. This isn't just, you know, pretend. And so there, there is hope that from both sides of the spectrum, you're seeing a push and an investment and a belief. But we, we absolutely have to address this on a local basis. The same story is playing out, right? In, in whatever slice of renewables you want to take, right? Whether it's, okay, well, how do we get enough EV charges to these gas stations along the freeways or motorways or whatever, wherever you might be? Because that also is a very heavy infrastructure lift. Then you're suddenly dealing with local monopoly utilities. I mean, the whole thing is is somewhat ossified and, and grinding compared to the necessity. Just, I mean, one more question on this, and I want to move on to some other stuff in, in the time okay. we've got. How should, though, if you are one of these renewable developers, how do you get access and understanding of the complexity at the various levels of government and policy to be able to tackle this? I mean, are they sort of hiring legions of sort of governmental relations people? Is this where getting a, a Cushman wait for? I mean, how do, how do you how do you get that understanding and factor that into your costs and time to deliver when you're wherever you are in the world? Well, that's what they need to focus on. And that's and, and to, you're, you know, you very nicely allowed me to plug myself, but they <laughs> they they have hired tons of government relations people. But real this is a real estate problem in a kind of very basic sense. To do this, you have to basically talk to neighbors, understand what pieces are available, how they're available, when they're available, what the timing's going to be, what are the motivations to do it. And that and that's a real estate problem. And so a large organization that I will not name had their their real estate director was in the UK and they were trying to do projects here. And he was trying to call a, a, a very conservative town in South Jersey and trying to get them to agree to allow them to put a, a transmission line under the city. And I got wind of this and I'm like, you know, there's three lawyers in town you should have called before that. You should know which mayor there, you know, wants a pickleball court and which one doesn't. And this is, this is a, the problem here has to be solved 
locally first. And many of these problems are being, they're trying to solve them engineering first and federally first. And you, you, you just, you'll get to the end of this problem and you'll realize that there's some guy with a flower shop that's still stopping you from doing this because mm -hmm. his cousin's a mayor and it's, it's, it's a local problem first. And so, you know, whether it's hiring Cushman and Wayfield or just understanding that real estate developers, professional real estate developers have been dealing with these problems forever or talking to the oil and gas people who, who have dealt with the same level of problems forever. I mean, that's where there needs to be more cross-industry understanding because it, 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 these, these are not new challenges. It's just a new industry. So changing tack slightly, the other piece of this conversation I wanted to have just because I thought you had really interesting insight is kind of, you know, as I as I stare over downtown Houston, there aren't any solar panels on top of these very flat, you know, rooftops of the, the skyscrapers. What's going on there? I mean, why aren't we sort of seeing the proliferation of solar panels in every on every available commercial real estate rooftop and warehouse? I mean, can you just help us understand that? And, and does that tie back into this kind of the issues around policy, insurance, all this kind of stuff? So, the, so, so for office buildings, look, you're, you're driven by returns and you're, you're driven by a rolling lease obligation system. So the reason that pension funds invest in in office space is it's a very stable sector. So when the pandemic hit and nobody was working in office buildings, everybody said, oh my God, every building's going to default. It's going to happen tomorrow. And the answer is no, even, in, even the tenants that are putting their space on for sublease, they've got seven years remaining on their lease. And if you're the landlord, you don't have a budget to go put solar panels on the roof of your building. And it may not be the right type of solution for that building anyways. So it's sort of the same attitude as, as, you know, let's change the entire trucking industry because we can change the car industry. It, it, it makes a lot of sense to try to get cars much more fuel efficient or even go to electric because it's the same as putting rooftop solar on. It's a diffuse solution to a problem. It's something that can actually work by just going one little bit at a time. For large institutional commercial real estate, you know, we're much better off by starting off with building more efficient buildings in the first place. That's where the money goes to. It isn't so much in, from a generation standpoint because the incentives aren't there. But if you can save money by, you know, having smart meters, by making sure the lights don't go on, by going through all of those things, that's where they get their return. So buildings have become tremendously more efficient over time, but they're not really great sources of power generation. This is that kind of where your guests have talked about, you know, should we be doing generation problems or should we looking, be looking at efficiency? And for large commercial real estate, it's still a small sector. And for them and for us, it, it just doesn't make as much sense to try to turn those buildings into power generation. Now, there are places where subsidies have made putting solar on large warehouse rooftops a really smart thing. And we see a lot of that kind of as we go forward. But typically that's when a lease rolls and the space goes vacant or a new building goes up. So it's a matter of perspective on progress, right? We, we feel like these things should happen tomorrow. 
But I think if you look at a picture from your office 15 years ago, you'd see no solar. And today you'd see 20% solar, you know, and the feeling is, oh, we've made no progress. Well, we've, we've made a lot of progress. So so I think, you know, we've kind of, it's, it's a fascinating discussion. It's a bit sort of a different angle than certainly, you know, where, where my most of my conversations sit. As you look forward from the real estate lens and the energy transition, what what are the big themes that we should look out for? What do you, what do you sort of divine from that? Because I think that's going to be a quite interesting insight to gain from you. Yeah, no, I look, I think the biggest thing we have to do is better planning going forward and a better understanding of how we interact with the built environment. I think as you look at the environment that we we currently are in, it's been breaking for a long time. The work environment has very much been uh, a slog and and inefficient for a long, long time. You know, again, I'll, I'll go back to my favorite Robert Moses book, you know, when he when he got rid of the Long Island rail line because he wanted to build more freeways because he thought if you built more freeways, there'd be less traffic. You know, he would talk, Carol went out and, and, and interviewed housewives in Long Island. And they just said, yeah, my, my husband's, we call it the three mile stair because they, after a while, they just get numb to the commutes. And so, you know, when we look at the energy transition on a philosophical basis and actually how it's going to be utilized as we go forward, it's a time management thing. And so for work environments, which we'll just call office, what we're going to see and what we should see is we should see less of a utilization of the automobile to get places because people are closer to the, to where they work. And that's how that system gets more healthy. It means we also densify and get more efficient with the buildings that we build in central downtowns. And you're starting to see that because these buildings will be, be converted. And as they're converted, they're going to be built to a much different energy efficiency standard. So I think you will see a, a demand for building materials continue to increase in cities. But I also think that what you'll see is you'll see kind of a hub and spoke where people will work closer to where they live because that's the real killer we see going forward. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's unsustainable. And that's why work from home has taken off so much from the real heavy power users, which are the industrial people and the data centers and the biotech research people. There seems to be a real understanding of the need for energy security, um, the challenges of intermittence, and the need to plan this out for the next 50 years. So, you know, we've seen data centers plan for power security as one of their major reasons for locating in certain places. And as we move more and more into Moore's law of technology, we're, we're going to see continued demand rise for, for power. And so those usages are going to need to really understand where we're going with the energy transition. I don't think we talk nearly enough about nuclear as being a solution to that, especially the, the, the small modular ones. I'm going to have to add trigger warnings now. Um, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh but again, as you say, right, the same things the same things apply, right? Permitting and the complexity there. But yeah. Well, 
it's been a really fascinating discussion. <laughs> but it's been a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's been a really interesting lens of another sort of series of stakeholders that add complexity to this and, you know, the complexity to the energy transition as well, right? And and, and again, I, it's, some of these decisions need to be sort of tackled at the, the political level, you know, rather than sort of ending up being ossified in, in a, a local regulatory in, in environment, right? Eugene, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Paul, I can't thank you enough. This is this has been fantastic, and I, I I deeply enjoy and find your show so informative. So for somebody who's not in directly the commodities business, it's it is so informative for those of us who listen to it. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.